the slither of the cards across the base table, the chink of the rouleau as the players place their bets, the soft murmur of the groom porters pronouncing the odds, were the only sounds in the inner chamber of Brooks's gaming club. Six men sat around the faro table, five playing against the banker. They wore leather bands to protect the laced ruffles of their shirts, and leather eye shades to shield their eyes from the brilliance of the chandeliers, whose many candles cast a dazzling glare upon the bay's table. The banker's face was expressionless as he dealt the cards, watched the bets being laid, paid out, or collected at the completion of each turn. To the spectators gathered around the chamber, it seemed as if winning or losing was a matter of complete indifference to Jack Fortescue, Duke of Saint-Jules. But there were those who knew that it was far from the case. Something other than the usual game of chance was being played out in the elegant room, where despite the late hour, the day's summer heat remained trapped, fusty with the smell of sweat mingled with stale perfume and spilled wine. The concentration at the table was focused upon a near-palpable current between the banker and one gamester. And gradually the other players dropped from the game, their supply of rouleau diminished, their hunger for the gamble for the moment overtaken by this other battle that was being fought. Only Frederick Lacey, Earl of Dunstan, continued to place his bets on the layout of the cards with an almost febrile intensity. When he lost, he merely thrust his rouleau across the table to the banker and bet again. The Duke, impassive as always, turned up the cards in steady rotation, laying winners to his right, losers to his left. Once his cold grey eyes flickered up and across the table to his opponent in a swift, assessing scrutiny. Then his gaze returned to the table. Neither man spoke a word. By God, Jack has the devil in him tonight! Charles James Fox murmured from the doorway where he stood watching the play. Like several of the others in the room, he wore the exaggerated costume of the macaroni, an impossibly tight waistcoat in bright crimson and gold stripes, and a beribboned straw hat over hair that was powdered a crazy shade of blue. And the devil's own luck it would seem, Charles, his companion replied in the same undertone. His own costume, rich in lace, ruffles, and gold velvet though it was, was almost somber in contrast with the others. The luck's been running with him for months. And always against Lacey, Fox mused, taking a deep draught of burgundy from the glass he held. I saw Jack win ten thousand guineas from the man at Quinn's last night. And twenty from him at Hazard on Monday. It seems Jack's playing a deep game. He's not playing for the pleasure of it. There's some damnable purpose behind it, George Cavanaugh said. If asked, I would say he's set to ruin Lacey. But why? Fox made no immediate response as he remembered the old scandal. No one knew the real truth of that story, and it happened so long ago now, it could hardly be relevant. He shook his head. Ever since Jack got back from Paris, he's been different. He shrugged slightly. I can't put my finger on it. He's his usual careless, charming self. But there's something, a hardness underneath that wasn't there before. Tis hardly surprising. 
Anyone escaping that hellhole of murderous anarchy is going to be touched in some way, George said somberly. They say he got out by the skin of his teeth, but he won't say a word about it. He just laughs that damnable laugh of his and changes the subject. He held out his glass to a passing waiter who refilled it. The two men fell silent, watching the play. Frederick Lacey had but one rouleau in front of him now. His hand hovered over it for a second, his first hesitation of the evening.